0: Romans chapter 9, Paul spent, last week we did a, a recap of the first eight chapters, several of you said we really liked it, and a couple of you said, "Ah, eh, not so much, <laughs> so uh, I, those that were blessed by it, I'm glad, those that didn't, we're, we're not going to do eight chapters again for a while, uh, but we are going to kind of do, we're going to be looking at chapter 8 today, and Paul spent the last eight chapters arguing uh, for the validity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and just to remind you, at the close of chapter 8, he wrote those powerful words in verse 38, He said, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing. So basically anything shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And over those eight chapters, Paul has given us, uh, he's really proven the point that salvation is through faith alone. And you can imagine how this is stumbling the Jewish people, uh, both even those who have become believers, but also the Hebrews or the Jews uh, that have not become believers. Remember, to the Jewish person, there's two types of people in the world. You're either Jewish, a son of Abraham, or you're what's called a Gentile. And a Gentile is anybody who's not Jewish. So you're either Jewish or Gentile. So when you hear the Scriptures refer to Gentiles, they're referring to anybody who is who is not Jewish, who is not from the lineage of Abraham, uh, through Isaac, Jacob, uh, and on down through Jacob. Jacob became name was changed to Israel. So anybody that came through Jacob would have, would be considered Jewish. Uh, not necessarily so with Abraham, because we know Abraham had another son. We'll mention that briefly today. But you can understand how the Jewish people were given. Uh, This responsibility of the Lord and, and representing the Lord to the to the rest of the world, and you can understand how as Paul's making this argument at this point, the Jewish person could have a have a complaint to make. He could say, "Wait a minute, Paul. Wait a minute. What are you? What you're saying doesn't make sense. Aren't the Jewish people God's chosen people?" And of course, yes, they are God's chosen people. But aren't you changing things now? Aren't you going back and saying the law is, is, isn't necessarily the thing that saves us and it's not where, we, not, 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 not where we find our righteousness through? Aren't the Jewish people God's chosen people? Yes, they are. Now, aren't you preaching the Gentiles and how they're becoming righteous is different than how we've done it all these years? Have the Jewish people been separated from the love of God? And you, you could see how this kind of questioning would come up. Did God fail to keep his promises to Israel? I mean, to a Jewish person, Paul, you've just changed how things are done. There, all of what we know in Christianity or in in world religion through the Jews into Christianity is changing. at, the, at Christ. You know, it, we're coming into a dispensation of grace. We're coming into a time of the Gentiles. And you can understand how Paul, how, how there's a lot of confusion taking place. And they could even, the Jewish person might even argue, wait, 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 wait Paul. if if this is all changing and God hasn't stayed faithful to the Jews, how can we be sure that he'll stay faithful to the Gentiles? Now, this isn't true. It's not a good argument, but this is the the mindset that Paul's sort of addressing. And he's going to spend the next three chapters, chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11, addressing this very line of thinking. And he's going to show us his love for Israel. Just a real quick outline on those three chapters. Chapter 9 is going to show Israel's past election how they were elected by God. Chapter 10 will show Israel's present rejection, not today, but in Paul's time, how Israel rejected Christ as the Messiah. And chapter 11 will speak of Israel's future restoration. So what we're going to see is their past election. It's going to be very, very clear. We're going to see their present rejection in the days of Paul, and we're going to see their future restoration. It's important to remember that as the apostle Paul is writing this, the nation Israel, the Jews, they didn't like him. They thought he was a traitor. They, 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 all, they know that he was ministering to Gentiles. He was, in their mind, he was putting down the law by teaching that there was freedom from the law. He was seen as a troublemaker in the synagogues as he went to Ephesus and from city to city. He was seen as sort of a problem a child, I guess you could say. So Paul wants to defend this in a way as we pick up in chapter 9, verse 1. He's going to say this. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed. That means cut off. I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. Paul doesn't want us to think that he's speaking metaphorically here. He starts this out by saying, I tell you the truth. I am not lying. Why would he say that? Because he wants you to know that he's speaking truthfully from his heart. He's not speaking in a metaphorically sense. He's not trying to illustrate something. He's saying, I am, I am here before you telling you the truth. And he says, I have continual sorrow or continual grief and great sorrow. My heart is broken for the nation of Israel because they're my brothers. They're my countrymen. They're, they're who I came from. I was one of them. So Paul, he, he's lining up and he's telling us, listen, I can relate to you guys. I am part of you. And I want you to really understand how, how much suffering, how much grief I have. So much so that Paul says, I would give up my salvation and suffer in hell. I would give up what I have in Christ Jesus if the Jewish people could get saved. If they would give their life to Christ, if they would see Jesus as the Messiah, Paul would say, I'd give up everything I have. Wow that's incredible how many of you would give up your salvation for somebody else how about a country who would give up their salvation so the whole nation of the United States of America could get saved not me I'm not giving up my salvation but that's not Paul's heart so Paul's setting up he's establishing listen the people the Jewish people the Hebrew people are very very dear to my heart I would give up all of it if they would just realize that Christ was the messiah And he starts out by noticing or recognizing the blessings of the nation Israel. He basically tells them, You guys are blessed. Look what he first says in verse 4 He says, To whom pertains the adoption? The, Israel was a nation who was adopted by God in the Old Testament. They were literally adopted. In, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, it says when Moses is going to speaking with God, and, and God tells Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him to let my people go. This is what God tells Moses to, tell, go, God tells Moses to go tell Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 4, 22. You don't to turn there, just listen. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So God himself is claiming Israel as they're they're adopted. They're they're the nation. they're, They're the son of God. But Paul also mentions the glory of God. The nation Israel, they got to witness the glory of God, didn't they? From Mount Sinai to the crossing of the Red Sea, Exodus chapter 40, then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. From the shining of Moses' face, the nation Israel got to see the glory of God like no other nation has ever seen before, including on and up to today. They've got something special is what Paul's saying. You guys are blessed. You're, you're the son of God. You've seen the glory of God. You've got the covenants of God, he goes on to say. Israel was given the covenants of God, the promises of God, first to Abraham and then to the, down unto down Moses to the Davidic covenant. God's made covenants with the nation Israel. Oftentimes people will make the mistake they read the Old Testament and they want to apply it to their life or apply it to the United States. Oftentimes you can apply it to your own life as God speaks to you through the word, but most of the prophets and most of the covenants, they're all for Israel. They're not for us, not for the United States. He's speaking to Israel there. That's God's, that's God's people. And he says they've given, they've, they have the giving of the law. God's law was given to the nation of Israel. Why did he give them the law? To govern, to govern them socially, politically, in the religious life. To guarantee their blessings. God said, I'm going to give you, Israel. I'm going to give you the law. If you follow this, if you do this, you'll be blessed. If you don't do it, you'll be cursed. He gave them a blessing and a cursing. He gave them the law. No other nation has received that. And he also said, I've given them the service of God. In other words, they were taking care of the tabernacle and the temple, the priests ministering to the Lord there. And also says, I've given you the promises of God. That's the Messiah coming through Israel, bringing the Messiah through them. The purpose of all these blessings was that Jesus Christ, the Messiah through Israel might come into the world. The greatest one is you guys have the, the, the unbelievable blessing of bearing the Messiah through your nation. No other nation has, given, has been given those kinds of blessings. No other nation has seen the glory of God like Israel has. No other nation has seen all of the things, have the promises that Israel have. In spite of these blessings, though, Israel failed. Israel failed, although it's partially the plan of God, I believe it is. When the Messiah appeared, when Christ appeared, what did Israel do? They rejected him as a nation, and they crucified him which opened the door to bring the Gentiles. You see, that was, God knew that that would take place. But does Israel's failure mean that God's word failed? Does it mean that somehow God's word failed? The answer to that question is no, but before we, we go on, I want to point something out to you in verse 5. It says this, of whom we are fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Notice, who Paul says, he's referring to Jesus, is over all. Who's he referring to? To Jesus. Who is he referring to when he says the eternally blessed God? He's referring to Christ. He's referring to Christ. Not only did the prophets say that the the coming Messiah would be God. The apostles claimed Jesus was God. Jesus claimed he was God. And now the apostle Paul is again right here claiming his deity that Jesus is God he writes there the eternally blessed God amen sometimes there's a question in Christianity whether Jesus is actually God he is actually God Paul tells you right there now back to our question does Israel's failure mean that God's word has failed or that God's choice has failed or that God made some sort of mistake and the answer to that question is no look at verse 6 But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is those who are of the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son it's not that God's word didn't come through for Israel but Israel failed to recognize the Messiah of God's word why he tells you there in verse 6 because they are not all Israel who are of Israel you say Rob that doesn't make any sense remember what the word Israel means it means governed by God so what he's saying there is they are not all governed by God who are of Israel so not everybody in Israel is being governed by God there, there will be a remnant that's saved, but he's saying not everybody, not just because someone's from the nation Israel, just because someone's Hebrew, even in true today, just because someone's Jewish doesn't mean that they're governed by God. No different than it just because someone claims to be a Christian that they're governed by God. And he goes on and he talks about Abraham a little bit. And he talks about the seed of promise. Remember, Abraham had two sons, didn't he? The first son that Abraham had was, anybody know? Ishmael, right, Ishmael 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 was a picture of the flesh remember how ishmael came about sarah had a promise she was going to have a she was going to have a baby she was getting kind of old she figures i'm going to help god out so she goes to abraham says abraham why don't you take my maidservant you go have relations with her you can and i'll have a son through her because i'm just too old for it so abraham goes yeah that's a good idea okay i'll do that she has a son and he's named and he's called ishmael and then later on sarah gives birth to isaac and what paul's saying is listen is ish, just because both of them are descendants from from Abraham. Both of them would become nations. Both of them would, would be blessed in that sense. But it wasn't, but God's choice, God's promise was, I'm going to bless the lineage of Sarah. I'm not going to, you know, not that they, they weren't blessed physically, but spiritually, my name is going to be carried on. My, the Messiah is going to come through the lineage of Sarah uh, from, from Abraham. Isaac is going to be born through Sarah, not, not through the maidservant even though it seemed impossible. So God's word didn't fail, but because, because God still reaches his children of the promise, which may or not be the same as physical Israel. So what we're saying is the children of promise just be, are, are the Jewish people, but they're not necessarily all of Israel together. It's not, it's not necessarily everybody. Simply being a descendant of Abraham didn't save anybody. It didn't make them anything except a, a descendant of Abraham. And Paul goes on to give us another example in verse 10. He says, not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What Paul is pointing out as we continue on is God is making a choice and he's making a sovereign choice based on his, on, on his desires. He, that's what he's going to show. Before Jacob and Esau were ever born, God chose Jacob. God said, Jacob, I'm choosing. I'm picking Jacob. Neither child had done good or bad at that point. They were still in the womb. Their path was predetermined by God based on his foreknowledge and it was not based on their character or conduct. So, for God has the ability to look at somebody and look in a situation, and say, "I'm going to choose to bless Jacob," and not that Esau wouldn't be blessed, because Esau would be a father of the Edomites; he would be blessed physically as well. But what we'll, what you'll find out is Esau didn't really care about the things of God; he wasn't interested in the spiritual things. He was interested more in the physical possessions. The passage is speaking of Israel's election. It had nothing to do with, the, with the, Jacob or Esau, with their merit, with whether or not they were good or bad. It had to do with God's choice on this. Just like the Lord chose Jacob over Esau, had nothing to do with their character. When Paul writes that verse, and I know maybe even this morning it caused a few of you to, to stumble a little bit, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. He was quoting from the book of Malachi, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And it brings us to sometimes scratch our heads and go, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. Why, why, did, why did God hate Esau? Why, and some commentators have suggested the word hate means love less. Uh, it could be true. So, you know, a lot of Bible scholars will say that the word hate means love less. And, and okay, but why, why did God pick Jacob over Esau? And we, we, we in, a, in a world, we, we want everything to be fair, right? We want everything to be right. We want everything. If, 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 if my brother gets it, I should get it. Nobody else should be. But isn't it all right for God to bless some, one person more than another? I mean, as long as he's dealing with all of us fairly, wouldn't it, shouldn't it be okay if God is, wants to give a blessing here and, and not over here for some reason? You go, well, that's fine as long as I'm the one getting the blessing. You know, I don't know how God makes these decisions. I don't know how, how he chooses that. And uh, many people have a problem with this verse, and they ask that question, how could God choose to hate Esau? The answer is this. God is sovereign, and he can do what he wishes, Period. God is sovereign. He's God. You're not. He can do whatever he wants. He can do what he wishes, however he wants to do it. The real question, I think, should be asked is how could he choose to love Jacob? Because it wasn't like Jacob was good. It wasn't like he was better than Esau. It wasn't like he had it all together. And Charles Spurgeon put it this way. A woman once asked, Mr. Sp- asked this, Mr. Spurgeon, I can't understand why God should say that he hated Esau. To that, Spurgeon replied, It's not my difficulty, madam, My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. How could God love somebody like Jacob? Because it wasn't like he had it all together. And when you read the Bible, you see that Esau, he was blessed by God. He was the father of a nation. He became the father of the Edomites. He was a blessed man. Genesis chapter 33, Genesis chapter 36 tell us that. But what you'll also find as you study and read on Esau, he didn't care about the things of the Lord. He wasn't interested in the things of God. He didn't didn't want the things of God. It wasn't up to him. God hated Esau, not in regard to Esau as a person. He hated Esau in regard to God's covenant being carried on. In other words, God made a choice. I'm going to carry my covenant on through Jacob and not Esau. It wasn't that God hated Esau as a person. God hated the deeds of Esau. He hated the things that he did. But God chose to carry his covenant on. One commentator wrote this. Our greatest error in considering the choices of God is to think that God chooses for arbitrary reasons, as if he chooses in a game of eeny, meeny, miny, mo. We may not be able to fathom God's reason for choosing, and they are reasons he alone knows and answers to, but God's choices are capricious. He has a plan and a reason. That's really what it comes down to. Do you understand that when God makes choices, it's through his sovereignty, it's through his plan, and he's not just going, well, I don't like this one, I like that one. Oh, I'm gonna choose this one, I'm gonna choose that one. Oh, I'm gonna pick this one, I'm gonna pick that one. A lot of people have taken this and they've applied it to uh, what, we, what we mentioned last, two weeks ago when we talked about Calvinism and reform doctrine, but who's Paul talking about here? Some of the nation Israel. The, the nation Israel has been, has been chosen by God as part of their plan. That would lead someone to this argument wait a minute Rob if God chose Jacob over Esau then Esau why could God ever condemn Esau because he hasn't done anything wrong it's it's not his fault in other words God you're being unrighteous in that thing God you can't choose who you want you're not being fair you're being unrighteous look what verse 14 says what shall we say then is there unrighteousness with God certainly not The answer is emphatically, no, certainly not. Why not? Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. So God says to Moses, and he said this to Moses, look, I can have mercy on whoever I want to have mercy on. I can have compassion on whoever I want to have compassion on. What's mercy mean? Remember remember the difference between mercy and grace? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. But here we're talking about mercy. Mercy is not getting something that you deserve. In other words, if someone commits a crime, they go to prison, if 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 the judge lets them off, he's showing them mercy because he's not giving them what they deserve. He's not giving them the sentence that they deserve. God is never less than fair with anyone. Think about that. God, he's never, never going to be less fair with you or with me or with somebody else. He's always fair with everyone. But he freely reserves the right to be more fair with the individuals that he chooses. It means he will deal with everybody fairly. But yet he can show more mercy over here if he chooses to. That's his right. That's his sovereignty. You see, Rob, this is frying my brain. Good, it's supposed to. We're not supposed to fully understand God. We're, not, we're never going to be able to fully understand him. God is always fair but sometimes with some people he's more fair than others does the Bible teach that absolutely it does remember the parable in Matthew chapter 20 about the landowner you don't need to turn there but I'm just going to kind of summarize it for you it says the kingdom of heaven was like a landowner who had a vineyard and he went out early in the morning and he wanted to hire some laborers to work in the field and he hired some very early in the morning and he said I'll give you a day's wage and you come give me a day's work and they said that's great And a few hours went by, and he said, well, I need some more laborers. So he goes out, and he hires some more laborers. They started a few hours after the first group. And then a few more hours go by, and he goes, well, I need some more laborers. So he goes out, and he hires some more laborers. And he says, I'll be fair with you, and come on and work in my field and, and harvest in my field. And he goes out right before quitting time, not long before it's time that the day's over. And he hires another group of laborers. He says, you guys come finish up the day with me and I'll be fair and I'll give you, I'll give you what's, what's, what you're entitled to, right? You guys remember that parable? And then he says to the, to the servant, to the guys that's going to pay them, he says, all right, I want you to get them all together and we're going to pay them. But I want you to start with those who were hired the latest, those who were most recently hired. So they were just hired a couple of hours before the day ended. And as they're all gathered around there, that group comes up and what do they pay them? They pay them a full day's wage. They give him a denarii, a full day's wage, but they'd only worked a couple hours. It's all right. He's going to give them a full day's wage. By by the time it got down to the last group, when the group that was hired first, they came, and you know what they received? A full day's wage. And you know what they did? It's not fair. It's not fair. I worked all day. They only worked two hours. How come they're getting a full day's wage? Landowner replied, I have done you no wrong. You've worked for a full day. I've given you a full day's wage. I've given it to you. I've done you no wrong. I gave you a full day's wage for a full day's work. Can't I do with my money what I want to? If I want to bless them with more money, isn't that my, isn't that my right to do that? Couldn't, isn't, isn't that isn't, in other words, you see the picture here. God is saying, if I want to do more, if I want to bless more, isn't that his right to do that? He's not dealing with it. Did he deal with the first group unfairly? Not at all. He gave them exactly what he said they would, a full day's work for a full day's wage. Now put it in your life. How would you take it? You go to work next week, Stand next to your coworker, you open up your check, and there it is. They got a thousand dollar bonus or whatever it is. And they, there's two checks in their envelope. I know we don't have we have direct deposit now, but so you check your bank statement, and they open up the check, and there it is—a thousand dollar bonus. And you open up yours, thinking, "Man," I'll, and it's not there. Would you be upset? You'd be like, "Man, this isn't fair." But did they did they wrong you in any way? No, God. They just chose to bless them in that way. And the whole idea here, the whole picture, is that God can do what He wants. And we, are, we have to recognize that he's going to do that. And why did he pick the nation Israel? Because he wanted to. Why didn't he pick another nation? Because he didn't want to. But remember that he's not just picking by eeny, meeny, miny, mo. His plan, his eternal plan is unfolding. And at it, it no point is he scratching his head going, oh, I didn't know that, wasn't, that was going to happen. He perfectly knew Israel would reject him. He wanted to bring the Messiah to the Gentiles. It was all part of his plan the way it's playing out. Now, Paul gives him another example in verse 17. He said, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Again, people have problems with this passage. They say, Wait a minute. If God hardens Pharaoh's heart, then it's not fair for God to judge Pharaoh. God allowed Pharaoh to rise to power so the Lord could be shown strong. God didn't force Pharaoh to harden his heart. God didn't make Pharaoh do it, but he sealed what path Pharaoh had already chosen. Don't think for a minute that God took a loving and caring Pharaoh who just loved the Lord and said, I'm going to make you hate me. I'm going to make you reject me. I'm going to make you turn away from me just so I can show myself strong on you. No, no, I'm going to make you a brutal taskmaster over the Israelites. Don't think for a minute that that's exactly how, how it happened. God allowed Pharaoh's heart to take the course that Pharaoh set his heart upon. And when you read the scriptures and when you study Exodus, you'll find this in Exodus chapter 7, verse 13, in Exodus chapter 7, verse 22, in Exodus chapter 8, verse 15, in chapter 8, verse 19, in chapter 8, verse 32, in chapter 9, verse 7, and in chapter 9, verse 34. It's eight times Pharaoh's heart grew hard and Pharaoh hardened his heart. So as you study it, God knew and he tells Moses beforehand that he was going to harden his heart. But it was Pharaoh who hardened his heart first. God just confirmed what (laughs) Pharaoh was already doing in his own heart. It wasn't that God said, I'm going to set you up for failure, Pharaoh. You have no hope in this. You have no shot in this. Remember, God has foreknowledge. God knew what Pharaoh would choose. And God used it for his glory so that he could show himself strong on it. When God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he was only confirming Pharaoh's own decision. Pharaoh saw the miracles of God. All of them, he saw them and still chose to harden his heart towards the things of God, towards the people of God. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Isn't it it a scary thought that at some point God can say, that's it, I'm going to seal the decision you've made and there's no turning back from it. At some point, at some point, I believe a person can rebel and reject God. At some point, and God says, that's fine, you've rebelled and you've rejected, I'm going to place my stamp of seal on it and there's no way you're ever coming back from it. When is that point? I don't know. I don't know when that point is. As long as you have the ability to follow and turn to Jesus Christ, I would say that you need to do that if that's you. But I believe that just like he did with Pharaoh, he will use that. He will use that course that someone sets their life on and says, all right, but what do we do as Christians? How do we handle that? Since we don't know when that point is and ever in anybody's life, we continue to pray, we continue to evangelize, and we continue to share Christ with them. Just like he did with Pharaoh, there comes a point where God says, all right, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to do it because that's what he's done. With our friends, with our family, we don't know, and don't ever be the one to proclaim that they've hit that point because you're not God, and you don't know, and he is sovereign. And you might think, you might make the mistake of looking at somebody and going, yep, God's hardened their heart, they're done, and that might not be the case at all. You might quit evangelizing, you might quit sharing, you might, and, that, and you might be the very one that God says, I was going to use you to turn their heart to me. I was going to use you to, do, to bring them back to me. But don't doubt for a moment that God won't allow you. And isn't that a decision that we see? If you're going to continue in that road, God says, I'll let you go down that road. That's the free choice that we have. That's where God's sovereignty and, and man's free will meet. I'll let you go down that road if you want to. If that's the choice you want. But you don't have to go down that road. At any point you can turn and say, that's, that's not who I am. I'm, I'm not going to do that. We don't know when that point is. But I know the question that comes. If God eventually hardened Pharaoh's heart why would he still find fault in him? Why, why could he then find him guilty? Is, is, isn't it God's fault then, if God was the one that hardened Pharaoh's heart? Look at verse 19. You'll say to me, why does he still find fault? Who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay for the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? It is all a matter of God's choice. How then can God find fault with me? How can anyone go against God's choice? Paul says it is disrespectful to ask that question. That's what he's saying there. It's disrespectful to ask that. Who are you to reply against God? Who do you think that as the created one, you can go to God and say you're doing something wrong? You've you've made a mistake. Does the, does the clay tell the potter how to be formed and how to make it? No, that's the potter's job. If the potter wants to make, you know, take, a, take a clay and he wants to make a beautiful pitcher and he wants to make an ashtray, can the ashtray then complain that they're made as an ashtray and they're going to have cigarette butts put on them for the rest of their life? No, it's, it's the potter's job, it's the creator's job, and it's, it's all speaking to the sovereignty of God. He uses the potter and the clay to illustrate that the creator has authority over his creation, that is you and I. God has authority over us as his creation, and we don't have the right to begin telling him what he's doing wrong in our lives. And for a lot of us, we need to come to the point where God is doing it right. Sometimes we look at our life and go, God, I don't like the fact that, you know, my hair's falling out or this or that or I'm not as pretty as I should be or this or that and we want to make all these complaints or I wish I was more outgoing or do you realize that you are the creation of God? He took your personality and he formed it in a way so that he could most use you for the crea- for for the, for the things that he made you for. If you're a quiet and introverted person, stay that way. You don't need to become a Christian and become extroverted. When you get saved, nothing changes in your personality. If you're afraid to talk to people, it's not like that you're going to get saved and that's going to change, but he created those personality traits in you so that he could use them to accomplish his will through you. So often we want to put everybody in a mold, especially Christianity, but that's not the way that God works. God has created each of us where his masterpiece, Paul would tell us in another book. He sees us as his artwork, his masterpiece, and he doesn't make mistakes. You see any other... Human artists would look at their artwork and they go, oh, "I should have done that there. I should have done this there." Not God. It's art. It's the artwork that looks at the creator and goes, "No, you should have done this here. And I wish you would have given, made me a little skinnier here. And and I wish I was a little more better looking over here. And I wish that." Stop it. Let God be God and let you be the, be be His creation and do and serve exactly what He's called you to do in the way that He's called you to do it. You don't need to pretend to be something you're not. Oftentimes, we see it all the time in Christianity, somebody gets saved and we want to change their personality. Don't change somebody's personality. God is the one that gave us our personality. Now, there's not to say that he won't stretch you or he won't put you in places that are uncomfortable so that he can show up and use you in a mighty way. That's the way it was for me. I didn't like talking in front of people. I'm still nervous. I don't like being in front of people. And uh, it's not to say he won't put you in places that you don't want to be. You don't have to change your personality. You let Him make the changes in you. Sometimes people get so caught up in trying to be like somebody else. They're, they're, they're an ashtray trying to be a coffee cup instead of being the ashtray. That they just, if they just be the best ashtray they could be, God would be very pleased with them. He goes, Some of you go, that's my life. I'm the ashtray. Now, see, now you, have a place, now you have a picture to put it in. No, I'm just kidding. All right, verse 22. What if God, wanting to show his wrath to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that they might make known the riches of his glory of the, on the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. If God chooses to glorify himself, letting people go in their own way, letting them righteously receive his wrath, so as to make his power known, so what? He's God. If, that's what, if he's going to allow people to choose a path of destruction, a path that will rebel against them, he's going to stamp that. Let it, he's God. He can do that. If God desires to be more fair with others, showing them his mercy, who can oppose him? It's not like he's not going to be fair with you or with me or with everybody else. But we have the problem of I want what they have. I want what they have. I look at their life and go, I want what, I, I, Lord, I want those blessings. And the next time you do that, I want you to ask yourself this question. Do you want to endure what they went through to get those blessings? Do you want to endure the life that they'd lived to get those blessings? Because oftentimes you're looking at somebody else's life and what you see is an outward picture and you don't see what's taking place internally. You don't see maybe they've lost a child. Maybe they've struggled with an addiction. Maybe they've had cancer. Maybe they've, you you don't see, you know, maybe they have no family anymore. You, You don't under, we don't always understand what's going, going in. Maybe their child is sick. Maybe they're, whatever it is. You want what they have now, but do you want to walk on the path that they had to walk on? to get the blessings that they have. And a lot of times, if you were to really know that path, you'd say, uh-uh, look at the Apostle Paul. I want to be like the Apostle Paul, really? I'm going to get beaten, thrown in prison, killed, martyred for your faith? Well, I don't want that. I just, I just want to be, you know, I want to write books like he did. I want to be, write part of the Bible. I want, I want those cool things done. No, you don't. You don't want to have to endure what he endured. Are you willing to say, like Paul said at the beginning of our chapter, I'll give up my salvation for my countrymen? hmm No but I want I want what he has no be careful when you do that the Jews believed that they were because they were Jewish God could only make them vessels of honor in other words being Jewish meant something they believed that during this time there was a that that Abraham sat at the gates of hell and if any Jew was accidentally coming into hell that he would be turned around by father Abraham and sent back up to heaven that, that, that's, this is literally what they taught during that time. They believed they could only be the vessels of honor just simply because they were Jewish. And Paul here is saying, listen, it doesn't matter. The Gentiles are coming into Christ. It's, you, not all of Israel, not all of it, people in Israel are being governed by God. The prophet Hosea validates God's right to choose and Paul quotes here Hosea chapter two, verse 23 and chapter one, verse 10 and verse 25 in our scripture. He says this, he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people. Who were not my people. That's referring to the Gentiles. And her beloved who was not beloved. And it came to pass in the place where it was said to them. You are not my people. they, There they shall be called the sons of the living God. What's that say? Speaking of God calling the Gentiles into a relationship with himself, calling the Gentiles the people of God. It also speaks of the Jews' temporary rejection when he says, you are not my people. But don't miss the last part. Speaking of the Jews, it speaks of their restoration. The Jews will be called the sons of the living God. The whole book of Revelation, remember when we talked through the book of Revelation, it's about those people that are rejecting christ being judged but also it's about bringing the jewish people back into a relationship with god it's it's about restoring their relationship with god the entire book of revelation is about that the church it's called replacement theology theology is not true the church does not replace israel Israel is Israel, the church is the church. We're two separate organizations operating. Right now it's a time of the Gentiles. The church, the the Gentiles are are, are coming to the Lord, but there's coming a time where I believe the rapture of the church will take place, the church will be taken out of here, and then God will begin working in the hearts of the Jewish people once again to bring them back to himself, and we will see that his plan come to fruition. But Isaiah, Paul also quotes Isaiah here, and he declares God's right to choose, and he also shows us there's a remnant There's a remnant of people. That remnant is a small amount. Look at verse 27. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed that's a remnant, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. God assures them he will preserve a remnant, a few. We're studying through the book of 1 Kings. We're going to see with, uh, with Elijah that Elijah thinks he's the only one left in the nation of Israel, or, the, or the, up, the upper 10 tribes and northern 10 tribes. We're going to find out there's a remnant that God has preserved. There's 7,000 that have not bowed their knee to Baal in the book of 1 Kings. God is assuring them he will preserve a remnant. Without God's preserved remnant, he's saying we would end up like Sodom and Gomorrah without God preserving a handful of us, a few of us, then the Jewish nation would end up like Sodom and Gomorrah. Has God really preserved the Jewish nation, the Hebrew people? If you don't think that he has, then you must either be uneducated or out of your mind. They had their nation taken away from them in 70 AD when the Romans came down and invaded them. and They did not have a land or a country until when? 1948. 1948, they're the only people group to survive over a thousand years without a country. Yet in 1948, miraculously, miraculously, they were given their land back, a small portion of their land. And it is the epicenter of everything that's taking place in the Middle East today. It's an incredible place to go. I can't wait to get back there. But they are still blessed by the Lord. God is still looking. Read the history on the Six-Day War. Read the history on how God provides and protects them. Read the stories on what God has done for the nation Israel. You'll be, you'll be blown away that he is not done with them yet. He's still working with them. F.F. F. Bruce says this, the merciful promise is clear, but if only a remnant will survive, at least a remnant will survive and constitute the hope of restoration. Now, look as we close out the end of the chapter in verse 30. What shall we say then? So, what's it mean to us? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained the law of righteousness. In other words, the Gentiles, that's us. We weren't even looking for righteousness, but we found it. How did we find it? Through faith. And then you have the nation Israel. They're looking for righteousness. They're trying to keep the law. They're doing what God says. They're they're looking for all this. They're looking for the righteousness through the law, and it evaded them. They couldn't get it. Why? Why did the Gentiles find righteousness and the Jews not find it? Because the Gentiles pursued righteousness in faith, And the Jews pursued the law of righteousness. They kept pursuing the law, the rules of righteousness. You've got to do these things. And Paul would tell us that the law was only set up as a schoolmaster. It's set up to show us that we can't do these things and that we need a savior. How are you pursuing righteousness this morning? Is it through faith in Jesus Christ? or is it through some legal system that you've set up in your own mind you see i'm pretty sure that none of us here are jewish in the sense where we're keeping all of the jewish laws and we're not orthodox and we're, we're that's probably not anybody here but we can sometimes pursue righteousness through our rules that we set up in our own mind what makes you righteous before god is it it—is it is it your faith only in jesus christ or is it if you do a few good works Is it if you give money to the church or to somebody in need? Is it if you get up and do your morning devotions? What is it that you find, what is it that says, all right, I've done my my duty for God today? You see, the righteousness, the being justified, justified never sin, comes by believing on Jesus Christ through faith and not through works. Once we have the faith, the works will happen naturally. We don't look to the works for our righteousness. That's what Paul's trying to prove here. Why not? Look at verse 32. Why was Israel cast off? Verse 32. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. They weren't looking to faith. It wasn't faith. It was in the law. We're going to be righteous based on how we keep the law. But as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. They kept the law. They stumbled at the stumbling stone. Who's the stumbling stone? Jesus, right? Let's keep reading. As it was written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Paul does not say, because God chose them. Notice here at the end of chapter 9, he puts the responsibility back on them. It wasn't about God is certainly sovereign. But here we find man's free choice meeting God's sovereignty. He said, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame because they did not seek righteousness by faith but through works they're not saved they stumbled at God's plan they didn't believe the Messiah had come among them they stumbled at that Paul has already shown in Romans that the only way to be saved is through faith not through the works of the law and that salvation comes only through the work of a crucified Savior not through the works of the law they are alone are responsible for their present condition. It doesn't mean that God didn't know that they would reject him because he knew that it would take place based on his foreknowledge, based on his predestination. They're responsible for their present condition. Paul has not contradicted God's sovereignty in any way. Instead, what we see is the other side of the coin here at the end of the chapter in man's responsibility. In other words, they didn't find salvation in Christ because they didn't believe in christ now paul's shown us a few things and we'll close with this number one he's shown us his great love for his countrymen a love that you and i probably and i don't know there's anybody here that would say i'd I'd give up my salvation for the nation of the united states of america maybe for your family maybe for your family but that's what paul's heart is number two he's shown us through this section of scripture that god is sovereign (laughs) And God is able to make choices based on his will and his will alone, but those choices are not eeny, meeny, miny, mo decisions. Those choices are very thought out, they're very calculated, and they're they're choices based on something that we don't have, which is foreknowledge. You see, when we make a choice, we don't know what the choice is going to lead to, do we? We have hope, we want it to lead in a certain direction, but God says, I can choose this, and I know exactly what direction it's going to go. I can pick Rob to be a pastor in Cumberland, Maryland, because I know at exactly some point he's going to obey and he's going to make those choices to go to Cumberland, Maryland. He can look at you wherever you're at this morning, say, I'm going to choose you this morning. And I know that I'm not done with the work in you. And I know that at the right times, at the right moments, you're going to make the right choices. But you could also look at somebody that doesn't believe in the Lord and say, I'm going to choose you because you're going like Pharaoh. I'm going to show myself strong because I know the choices you're going to make, Pharaoh. I know you're gonna harden your heart against me and you're gonna harden your heart against me and there's gonna come a day where I'm gonna seal that hardening that you've done to your heart and I'm gonna show myself strong for you as I release the people of Israel from the bondage that they're in because of the choices you've made. So God's sovereignty is clear. Israel's election is clear, Paul told us in the very beginning. Israel has been given blessings that no other country has ever been given and he's still with them. Israel's stumbling block, it was Jesus. It was the Messiah. But don't think for a moment that it was God's stumbling block. Because God knew that the nation Israel would reject their Messiah. He knew they wouldn't recognize him. And he knew that we would move into the era of the Gentiles. But don't think for a moment that he's done with the nation Israel. They are still God's chosen people. They will be called back to him. And many of them, that remnant, not only was there a remnant during the Assyrian captivity, that remnant still exists today in the nation of Israel. Don't be a fool and think that it doesn't. Next week, we're going to look at Israel's rejection of the gospel. Remember what I said, chapter 9 speaks of Israel's past election and God's sovereignty. Chapter 10 will show us Israel's present rejection during the time of Paul. And the following week, we'll look at chapter 11, which will show Israel's future restoration. When we come into chapter 12, it's going to be a whole lot more applicable to us as Christians. And some people have even said these three chapters don't belong in the book of Romans. I disagree. I think it's very, very important we understand where God's position is on Israel. I think too often we don't understand where God thinks about Israel. And if without the Old Testament, without God's heart for Israel, we can't truly and fully comprehend the things he wants us to out of the New Testament. It's very, very important that we do. So next week we'll be in chapter 10, and we will see this Israel reject the gospel as we close chapter 10. So Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Lord, I just pray that if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, As they even heard about Pharaoh hardening his heart and hardening his heart and hardening his heart. Rejecting and rejecting and rejecting. Standing in the midst of miracles. Watching you do amazing things. From plagues to miracles to unbelievable things. Or may there not be anybody here that hardens their heart so far to that point. Where you finally say, I'll confirm that decision. Instead, may you continue pursuing each one of us. Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, may they right now give their life to you. May they realize they're separate from you and may they decide and, and come to the realization they believe on you. And That your plan is unfolding and that you have a plan for their life and may they ask for forgiveness for their sins and may you grant it. May their life be forever changed because this will be the day that they get saved and they choose to follow you. And for those of us who do believe, Lord, for those of us who already know you, Thanks for opening our eyes to Israel and what's going on. Or may we not take our salvation for granted? May we not complain against your choices or your sovereignty, but may we always realize our choice is at hand, and as God's sovereignty meets man's responsibility, may we choose wisely to follow you.